0: I invite you to stand, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32. If you have the few Bibles, that is on page 462. Please pay special attention to the reading of. God's holy word. Psalm 32. Massful of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I I, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved, bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. God, we need you. We need you to work By your spirit, through your word, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What comes to your mind when you hear the word confession? We talked about it earlier in the service. We looked at part of Psalm 32 something we do every Sunday here at Livingstone Church. We confess our sins to the Lord. It's not some boring concept to us. But if someone asked you about confession, how would you describe confession? What are some adjectives you would use? What are some emotions you would associate with confession? Would it be positive things or negative things? And maybe at different points in your life, that would be a different answer, right? We might think about confession in legal terms. You might think about the, you know, the quintessential movie scene where someone has been apprehended and they're in this tiny little room with some detectives sitting around them and they're trying to, to get a confession out of this person and there's people watching behind the glass and everybody's wondering what's going to happen. There's probably some coercion going on there. Or we might think of it in just more everyday matters a young child comes to their parent and says they're sorry and confesses that they broke something of, of value to the parents. Well, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and as a young boy, I remember meeting face-to-face, actually, uh, with a priest for confession. Usually it's behind a little screen in a little room. You don't see that in movies. If you're not familiar, you didn't grow up in the Catholic Church. That's often the way that it's done, but I remember one time sitting in a room, face to face in the church with the the priest and I was supposed to confess my sins and I'm just sitting there and he's like you know waiting for me and I'm like you know I don't know but I don't know what to say and it it wasn't because I didn't have any sin it wasn't because I like thought I hadn't done anything wrong it was just awkward right and here's this kid like talking to this authority figure and telling them things that you've done wrong and he's like giving me help like You know, did you were you mean to your sister? So it's like, okay, I was mean to my sister, right? So for some of us, maybe that's kind of the picture we have of confession. And I think too often we have a narrow view of confession, a much too human view of confession. We think about it primarily just on the horizontal plane, which I think is important. But we can miss the primary goal. Of confession, and that is a restored vertical relationship with God. I think we also tend to think of confession only in negative terms. Again, if I asked you to some words that you might associate with confession, you'd probably think about negative, you probably give me some negative terms. Well, David blows that idea out of the water here in Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is one of seven penitential Psalms where the psalmist cries out to God for forgiveness. For protection from enemies, for restoration. These penitential psalms often begin with something like, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice, or hear my prayer, O Lord, or have mercy on me, O God. But Psalm 32 is unique among these penitential psalms because it begins with the conclusion. Verses one and two contain glorious truths for those who have confessed their sins and experienced God's forgiveness. So while this psalm certainly is about confession, it's just as much about the results of confession as it is about the act of confession and the need for confession. It really combines confession and assurance together, and they must always go together. We should never confess our sins just for the sake of confessing our sins. Confession is not some therapeutic thing that's just supposed to make us feel better about ourselves and help us have a clear conscience. We certainly know this from human relationships, don't we? Whether it's a parent child relationship or a marriage relationship, the goal must always be reconciliation and restoration. Without the words, I forgive you from the other party and the sincere desire to not sin against them again, our confessions are just empty words. It just becomes routine. Think about an example in your own life when you said you were sorry and you knew that you didn't really mean it. How did that impact that relationship moving forward? Probably didn't lead to peace and restoration of the relationship. I wonder how often our faulty understanding of confession and assurance of forgiveness in our relationship with God, how that faulty view impacts our relationship with others. Well, thankfully, God has not left us in the dark on these matters. David is such a great example for us in the Psalms.
1: In another Psalm that
0: we're probably familiar with, Psalm 51, David cries out to God for mercy. He asked him to blot out his transgressions, to wash him thoroughly from his iniquity, and to cleanse him from his sin. In Psalm 51, we know from the heading that David is responding to God after Nathan the prophet came to him to confront him for his adultery with Bathsheba and his conspiring to have her husband Uriah murdered. Now, in response to this heinous horizontal sin that David committed, David did suffer earthly consequences as the child that Bathsheba conceived and bore uh, was, ended up dying. David says in his confession in Psalm 51, he says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now clearly this doesn't mean that David didn't sin against Bathsheba or that he didn't sin against Uriah or that he didn't sin against the people of Israel who God called him to lead, certainly he did. But ultimately, he had to deal with his sin with the Lord, his sin against the Lord. And so it is with us. While we sin against others and we should seek to be reconciled to others, our primary problem is not our horizontal sin, but it is our vertical sin. And while the Bible does command us to forgive others, there is no promise that those who we have sinned against will forgive us. We can all think about broken relationships that either we have or those we know have with family and friends, and it grieves us. It pains us to maybe be the person who has sought forgiveness and that person won't get offended. And the really good news is what we see here in Psalm 32 is that there is no uncertainty when it comes to God's forgiveness. We have a sure and certain promise that the Lord will not only forgive our sins, but he will do much more as our faithful covenant-keeping God. So let's look at how this plays out in Psalm 32. If you're taking notes, we can divide this into two halves. Verses one through five contain promises, and verses six through 11 contain instructions. First section, verses 1 through 5, is a theology of confession and forgiveness. A theology of confession and forgiveness. It's what we need to know and believe. The second section, which we'll come to in a bit, is instructions for confessors. Instructions for confessors, what we need to do. So first, the theology of confession and forgiveness, what we need to know and believe. Remember, David begins Psalm 32 with the conclusion here in verses 1 and 2. He gives us the assurance of what is true for those who have truly confessed their sins to God. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This word here that begins this psalm is a great word. Uh, it's the, the word that begins all of the songs. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, stand in the way of sinners. Similarly, this song begins with that word, blessed. We have talked about this before. This word, blessed, in the Hebrew, can actually be translated as happy. Uh, some translations here say, how happy? How happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven? Or how joyful is the one? When we understand and embrace the significance of how God has worked in our lives according to these verses, we can't not be happy and joyful seeing what he has done in forgiving our sins. And David, in these verses, he uses three synonyms which also are used in Psalm 51 above. We saw uh, that his transgressions are blotted out, his iniquities are washed, And his sin is cleansed. So, transgression, iniquity, and sin are all used here as well. That same that David uses in Psalm 51. The first one, blessed is one whose transgression is forgiven. This word transgression could also be translated as crime or rebellion. It's a word that's used in a legal sense. And the action which God takes is that he forgives which means to to carry or to take away or to bear. Isaiah 53, that famous passage about the suffering servant, it says that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, that he bore the sins of many. That picture of the Messiah bearing our sins, taking our sins, that is that picture of transgressions, our our crime, our rebellion against God, being borne by the Savior, being carried away. The next picture is of sin being covered. Maybe may be familiar, familiar with this concept, this word for sin in the Hebrew is the word that means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. It's that distance between the bullseye and where the arrow is. That is called sin. It's an offense against God's perfect moral standards. So anything outside of that center bullseye that results in guilt and condemnation what are we told here about our sin? Our sin is covered. God covers it or hides it. Not as if it didn't happen, but as if, as if it's gone. As if it can no longer be held against us. And then verse 2, blessed or happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Iniquity refers to the guilt or punishment of sin. It's something that needs to be atoned for. In the process of sacrifices in Israel, a lamb needed to die to atone for the sins of the people. Iniquity would be that thing, that offense against God that carries guilt and that deserves punishment that needed to be atoned for. The promise here is that the Lord will not count or charge or impute the iniquity of those whom he has forgiven. We'll come back to this a little bit later. So David begins here in Psalm 32 with this glorious promise of God's forgiveness, of our transgression, our sin, and our iniquity, this full picture of all the ways we've sinned against God and others, of God taking it away and removing, removing it, covering it, bearing it himself. And this promise is needed because of the problem, which we see in verses 3 and 4. Now, we don't know the exact situation here in David's life. This could be also speaking about the Bathsheba and Uriah incident, but we don't know that for sure. But we can assume this was certainly not the only time that David cried out to God and was broken over his sin. I think we would actually do well to think about verses 3 and 4 as an ongoing need in our lives or we could say that we could potentially find ourselves in this situation that verses 3 and 4 are pointing to at any point and this is that we keep our sin to ourselves David says for when I kept silent what is the result here of keeping silent it's not pretty." It's a feeling of our bones wasting away through groaning. Of God's hand being heavy upon us. Of our strength being dried up. And notice for David that this was a constant feeling. Look at the words he uses there. His groaning was all day long. Day and night, God's hand was heavy upon him. And this is not because God is some tyrannical ruler who wants to just punish us constantly. Verses three and four are actually reminders that God is merciful and gracious, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that he disciplines us for our good, that he does not leave us to ourselves, but by his spirit, he brings conviction to our hearts and our minds, that we might turn from our sins, that we might drink deeply from the wells of his forgiveness. That's what David experiences then in verse five. Notice the parallel language with verses 1 and 2. He acknowledged his sin. He did not cover his iniquity. He said he will confess his transgressions to the Lord, and God forgave the iniquity of his sin. first step here is that he acknowledged his sin. This word also means to reveal, to make known. He didn't cover it up. He acknowledged it to the Lord. He made it known to the Lord and he did not cover his iniquity. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, points out the paradox of the word cover in verse 1 and verse 5. It says, when we uncover our sin, verse 5, God covers it, verse 1. But when we cover up our sin, it remains uncovered. Say that again, when we uncover our sin, when we make it known, God covers it. But when we attempt to cover up our sin, it remains uncovered. In other words, God sees. You can't hide your sin, and you can't hide in your sin. That's what humans have been trying to do since the Garden of Eden, right? To cover themselves up, to hide from God. And the message is, Don't hide. right? Don't try to cover it up. You can't. Come into the light. David says that he will confess his transgressions to the Lord because God knows and he sees and he promises forgiveness. Proverbs 28.13 summarizes this well. It says whoever conceals or covers his transgression will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. This is wisdom. This is the constant testimony of Scripture. And David rejoices that God has forgiven the iniquity of his sin. That's where the jubilant praise in verses 1 and 2 came from. From the rock-solid assurance that the confession of his sins was heard by God and that God's forgiveness is granted as promised. Now, we need to understand how this works. This is not some formula to try to manipulate God and to earn his grace and his favor and his forgiveness. Confession and repentance are not a process that can just be done by us robotically. You don't just come to church and say, okay, it's, it's that time of the service again, right? It's that time of the week. I got to confess my sins again. It's something that involves our whole hearts and our souls and our minds and our strength. Brian Chaplin, who I quoted from earlier in Christ Center Worship, he explains it like this We run to his arms with our sin sick hearts because we know there is grace sufficient, boundless, and free already there. We repent because we are forgiven, not to gain forgiveness. In our confession, we experience God's love because we confront our sin with the greatness of mercy that is already ours through faith in Christ, but we do not earn, gain, or force God's pity by the words or weight of our confession. We are forgiven because he was forsaken, not because our contrition is adequate. If God's forgiveness were gained by the adequacy of our repentance, then no one but his son would know his care. But because our faith is in the finished work of that child, we are cherished children of God, despite our constant waywardness and the inevitable inadequacy of our confession. You may have wondered, why do we need to continue to confess our sins if God has already forgiven us? I think that last line from Dr. Chapel's quote nails it. We are cherished children of God because of the finished work of Christ, despite our constant waywardness and the inevitable inadequacy of our confession. This is the tension that we live in, isn't it? We are prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love. And on this side of glory while indwelling sin still remains in us, we need reminders and constructions for us to continue to fight the good fight of faith. David now gives those instructions to his fellow worshipers, to his brothers and sisters in the Lord in the second half of Psalm 32. We see here in verses six through 11, instructions for confessors, what we need to do. There's another great parallel here with Psalm 51. After David confessed his sin in Psalm 51 and asked God to restore to him the joy of God's salvation and to uphold him with a willing spirit, David said this in verse 13 Psalm 51. He said then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn to you. David was the chief repenter among God's people and God used him to teach others the ropes of confession, forgiveness, and restoration. Verses 6 and 7 here are a continuation of David's prayer that began back in verse 3. Here he is weaving together this prayer on behalf of of others with the declaration of praise for all that God has done for him. The emphasis here is on the safety and security that David has experienced in conjunction with God's gracious forgiveness. Now, if you're familiar with the Psalms and David's life, you know that David spent a good deal of time running for his life. David was surrounded by enemies all around him. So this is a bit of a personal testimony here of David's prayer life and his relationship with God. He says, let everyone who has got the offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found, which is always, right? God will always be found. And he says, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. He says that God was a hiding place for him. God preserved him from trouble and that the Lord surrounded him with shouts of deliverance. This reminder from David of what he had experienced from God was necessary for God's people in David's time when the actual physical enemy nations were against them. And it's a necessary reminder for us today as the Church of Jesus Christ when we face opposition in a world that's hostile to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, our hiding place is secure. We are safe in the Lord. Verses 8 and 9 then are again a reminder of our constant waywardness. That we are prone to be stubborn like a horse or a mule. These are tied very closely with verses 3 and 4. It's an encouragement not to be silent but to confess our sins to the Lord. And then verses 10 and 11 are a great conclusion to the psalm that highlight the freedom that is ours if we trust in the Lord. David makes a distinction here between the righteous and the wicked, something he also does in Psalm 1, to to set the tone for all of the psalms. He makes this distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The wicked are those who do not trust in the Lord and who experience many sorrows. The righteous are those who trust the Lord and who are surrounded, think back to the imagery in verses 6 and 7 about God's protection, they are surrounded by his steadfast love. And now after all this declaration of, of things that are true, we come to the first set of commands in this psalm. There are three of them in verse 11. Be glad, rejoice, and shout for joy. Be glad in the Lord, oh be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Notice David pointing to, to who they are, the righteous in the Lord. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Because your trust is in the Lord, O people of God, because we are happy and joyful and blessed to have our transgressions forgiven and our sin covered and our iniquity not counted against us and not having deceit in our spirits. Therefore be glad and rejoice and shout for joy. Praise God for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. That is the command for us. But what does this practically look like for us today? And this is really make a difference in our lives. Can this really impact the way that we live and the way that we interact with other people? believe it can and it must. We can think about this in terms of our identity and our calling as Christians, who we are and what God has called us to do. The Apostle Paul picks up on both of these themes of identity and calling in the New Testament with both a direct quote of Psalm 32 and then an allusion to Psalm 32. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is arguing that those who believe in Jesus are justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is the Gospel 101. Our justification, our right standing with God is by faith. It's not by works. It's not by us trying hard. It's not by us doing the right things. It's not even by us using the right words in our confession of sin. It's by faith in Christ and in Him alone. Paul goes on then to bolster his argument in chapter 4 of Romans by quoting from Genesis fifteen six that says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's arguing that way back then, even Abraham, it wasn't because of his works that God declared him righteous, but it was by his faith in God. After pointing to Abraham, which he's going to come back to later in the chapter, he, he points to David. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, and he goes on to quote David in Psalm 32, 1 and 2, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So he makes the argument beginning with Abraham, then he goes to David, then he closes the chapter by coming back to Abraham and saying that this promise was not just for Abraham and his physical descendants. This is Romans chapter four, beginning in verse 22. He says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Pay attention to that word, counted. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, for Christians today, for believers in Jesus It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now notice how Paul in Romans is connecting David's declaration in Psalm 32 with the truth that is ours in Christ. God does not count our iniquity against us if we confess our sins to him. Instead, and don't miss this, He counts us righteous who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord. This is the crucial identity piece that we must walk away from here today having certainty of. Are you and I counted righteous in Christ? By faith in him, by faith in him alone? Or are we still trying to be justified? Are we trying to be right with God by our works? Or to put it another way, Are we seeking some other way to have our sins forgiven? Are we trying to cover up our own sin? Are we seeking a substitute savior? Money, a job, social status, a relationship. If you're here today and you are a Christian, then you've experienced the blessedness, the joy, the happiness that comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven. Don't be fooled by false substitutes that the world seeks to offer you. Don't forget who you are and whose you are. And if you're here today and you are not yet a Christian, I am here to declare to you that this is the way. This is the only way to be right with God and to have your sins forgiven. Confess your sins to him and turn to him. Trust him alone to remove your sin and your guilt. Cling to Christ today and don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. So that's the identity piece. The other thing that Paul addresses is our calling. How are we to live out the truth of the gospel? Similar to David's instructions in Psalm 32 in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is describing the ministry of reconciliation that we have been given to go into all the world as Christ's ambassadors and to make him known. And here is where he makes an allusion to Psalm 32. I think you'll catch it after everything I've just been saying. Beginning in verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5:17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great gospel truth. The great exchange, as Martin Luther called it, that God God didn't count or impute Our trespasses to us. Excuse me. But he counted them against or he imputed them to Christ. Christ gets our sin and we get his righteousness. This is the full blessedness of Psalm 32 realized only on this side of the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This should fuel our confession and our assurance, realizing that this is not just for us, but this is the message that God has sent us out into the world to proclaim to lost sinners. In Christ, we are happy, safe, and free. Let us be glad and rejoice and shout for joy. Let us pray. God, you are merciful and gracious. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You have been so good to us when we did not deserve it. You sent your son to take our sin, to bear our sins in his body on that tree, that we might be counted righteous in him, that our sin might be counted, imputed to him that we might go free, that we might be protected, that we might be saved from the world, the flesh, and the devil, that we might be happy and joyful in you, that our sorrows have been borne away. And God, we recognize still that in this world, we will have trouble, as Jesus has promised us. Thank you, Lord, that you have overcome the world. How may we be a people who are quick to turn to you, who are quick to confess our sins, who are quick to seek restoration in our relationship with you and in our relationships with others. that cause us to be a confessing people who are assured of your great love for us. Lord, and send us out with that message of reconciliation to the world around us.